do hope and pray that you'll avail yourself of the opportunity to worship with us at Rainbow Drive. I want you to open your Bibles now to Matthew, the 18th chapter. I want us to just read two verses together. That'll be our text for this morning. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. I've often heard John, the 13th chapter, the 34th verse, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so that by this the world will know that you are my disciples. I've often heard that uh, verse referred to as the 11th commandment. In fact, I've referred to it that way in a sermon that I preach on that verse. I've often heard uh, what the Bible teaches on discipline and, and withdrawing of fellowship. I've often heard that as the uh, forgotten commandment, referred to as the forgotten commandment. But I'm convinced now that what the Bible teaches on forgiveness is the most overlooked commandment, the most overlooked of all of Christ's teachings by all of mankind, including those who are members of the church. I don't think there's a command that fell from the lips of Jesus. I don't think there's a teaching that fell from his lips that is more ignored, more overlooked, and more failed to practice, if you will, than what the Lord taught on forgiveness. I counseled one time, or I guess you'd call it counseling. I was in a discussion with a lady from another state who was extremely bitter about life in general. She was bitter towards her deceased husband, bitter towards her children, bitter towards the congregation where she worshipped, just bitter towards almost everything and everybody of which you can think. And I said to her, I said, ma'am, you know, why do you want to? She was an elder lady. I said, why do you want to spend the remaining years of your life so bitter towards everyone? And why do you want to die with that attitude? You know, Jesus taught that if we're not willing to forgive one another, God is not going to forgive us. The lady said to me, Gordon, that is one part of Jesus' teachings that is impossible to live up to. She said, I don't believe there's anyone who can live up to what he taught on forgiveness I don't believe there's anyone who could truly forgive when they've been hurt or when people have really offended them. I said, ma'am, you're wrong. Jesus never gave us a teaching that we couldn't live up to if we wanted to live up to it. You're not living up to what Jesus taught in forgiveness simply because you choose not to live up to it and simply because you're looking at yourself instead of looking at Christ and asking him for the grace and the strength to give you that grace and strength to forgive. Now, before getting too deeply into the lesson... What is a person's obligation towards someone who has offended him or misrepresented him or falsely accused him and that person refuses to repent of that, refuses to withdraw those charges? I was in a meeting, as I'm in every year, many of them, but on this one particular occasion I preached on forgiveness and I do preach on that subject relatively often. But anyway, the local preacher there wrote me after I got home and he said to me, Now, Gordon, what do you do about people who have offended you and people who... Uh, have hurt you and won't repent of it, don't even ask for your forgiveness, or what would you do if somebody misrepresented you or falsely accused you and persists in that false accusation and refuses to repent of it? Well, you can't, um, in a sense, forgive a person to his face for something that he refuses to repent of. But certainly, the attitude of a Christian should be never to retaliate, never to try to do to that brother what he has done or has tried to do to you to always have a spirit of forgiveness and to try to understand that probably in his own way he probably thinks he's doing right. Try to be compassionate towards him. Try to be understanding towards him. You can't harbor resentment. You can't harbor 
bitterness towards any human being on the face of this earth. But obviously, if somebody has falsely accused you and someone refuses to withdraw that accusation or someone has offended you and refuses to repent of it, well, you may not be able to fellowship that person. But certainly, you should have an attitude towards him of not wanting to retaliate and a forgiving attitude and forgive him as much as he will allow you to forgive him and to always be kind and courteous and be to conduct yourself in his presence and towards him the way that God would have you to do and to act always like a Christian. But it is impossible to forgive a person who doesn't want your forgiveness or who rejects your forgiveness or who does wrong and persists in doing that wrong and refuses to ever make any effort to rectify that wrong. But now, after having getting that out of the way, the bitterness and the hatred and the vengeance that is part of the attitude of so many people in the world, those who belong to different religions and those who even belong to the New Testament church, is something that surely should be of great concern to all of mankind. The hatred and the bitterness between blacks and whites, many of them who claim to be Christians, the bigotry between blacks and whites, many of them who claim to be followers of God, the hatred and the bitterness and the prejudice toward the, that the Jews have towards the Arabs and the Arabs have towards the Jewish people, the hatred and the bitterness of taking place over in Northern Ireland where the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, uh, plants bombs and blows up innocent people, kills innocent people because they object to the British rule in that portion of the world and are trying to drive the British out of that portion of the world. And these people claim to be religious, claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and have this retaliatory attitude, this vengeful attitude. What's been taking place here the last couple of weeks over this book, Satanic Verses, authored by uh, Salman Rushdie. Now, I'm not here to argue whether Mr. Rusty is right or wrong. The book might uh, be highly offensive to Muslim people. He may have totally misrepresented the Muslim religion. I don't know. That's not the issue with me. The issue is, do our Muslim friends have the right to place a price on his head, a bounty on his head of some $5 million? Do they have the right to encourage one another to murder him? Do they have the right to cry out death to Rusty? And do they have the right to believe that by killing this man, that this is pleasing to the God they worship. Now, let me teach you a little bit about the Muslim religion. The Muslim religion began with the so-called prophet Muhammad. He was born in 560 and started the Muslim religion, I guess, in the 7th century. When Muhammad was living, there was much animism and polytheism in the world. That is, people were worshiping inanimate objects, and many of them were worshiping a plurality of gods. While Muhammad directed people back to one god whom they called Allah, the word uh, Muslim simply means to be in submission to God. The word Islam, and they're often called the Islamic people, the religion of Islam, simply means submission. Now, the Muslim people believe that God gave Muhammad the Quran, which is a more updated version of his word, the last, the last word that he gave mankind on this earth. But the Muslim people also believe that Muhammad was just a prophet among prophets, the last prophet that God sent into the world. They don't worship Muhammad. They worship Allah. And they believe that Muhammad was the last prophet that God sent in the world. And they recognize Abraham as a prophet. They recognize Moses as a prophet. They recognize Jesus as a prophet. They don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They don't believe that he was the Savior of the world. But they do recognize him in their position to be a prophet among prophets as Muhammad was a prophet. Well, now here's the point that I want to make. Our Muslim friends believe Jesus' teachings. They couldn't take the position that Jesus was a prophet and reject his teachings. 
Well, what did Jesus teach about your enemies and how we're to treat our enemies? Matthew, the fifth chapter, begin with the 43rd verse. He said, you've heard it said of them in olden times to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you that you love your enemy. Do good to those who hurt you. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who despitefully use you, that you might be called the children of your Father in heaven, who make it the sun to shine on the good and the evil, and who send it the rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love only those who love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute the brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans this? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what did Jesus say we're to do towards our enemies? How are we to treat our enemies? Jesus said we're to love our enemies. We're to do good to those who persecute us. Bless those who despitefully use us. Pray for those who are trying to hurt us. Jesus says that we should treat them in a manner that we would want God to treat us. Now, when you put a price on people's head, when you go out and murder as a retaliatory, vengeful act, is that following after the teachings of Jesus Christ? Is that doing what the Lord told us to do? In Romans 12 and 19, the Apostle Paul said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he give him to drink, if he, if he thirst, give him to drink. By so doing, thou shalt eat coals of fire on his head. And be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So the follower of the Lord, the person who claims to believe in Jesus Christ, the person who claims to be religious, who claims to believe in God, never, never has the right to be vengeful. Never, never has the right to want an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and to even things up and to do unto others as he, as others have done unto him in the sense that they have heard him. The golden rule of the Bible says, even so you do unto others as you would have others do unto you. So the child of God can never have this vengeful, bitter, hateful, antagonistic attitude towards another human being. It's as contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ as night is today. Now, why is it that so many people refuse to forgive? Why is it that husbands refuse to forgive wives and wives refuse to forgive husbands? Why is it that parents refuse to forgive children and children refuse to forgive their parents? Why is it that friends refuse to forgive friends? Why is there so much of this unforgiving spirit, this unforgiving attitude in the world? Why is there so much of this unforgiving spirit in the brotherhood? I've talked to a group of elders recently, and one of the elders said to me, he said, Gordon, you do a lot of uh, traveling in the brotherhood, do a lot of meeting work and preaching. He said, I'd like to ask you a question. Can you tell me why so many brethren are so bitter? Why so many brethren are so unforgiving? Why they're so antagonistic? I said, brother, I've been asking that question for many, many years. You'll have to ask somebody other than me. I simply do not have the answer to it. Well, now, why? are so many people so bitter? Well, this is an opinion that I didn't share with that elder, but it could be a false sense of pride, friends of brethren. I said to one of my brethren back at Rainbow Drive and visiting with them here just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about sin and the problems of sin. He said to me that he believed that the sin of pride might cause more people to lose their souls than any other sin of which you can think. The sin of thinking of ourselves as being better than others. The reason that many people won't forgive is because they think they're so much better than the person they won't forgive. They think they're so much holier than the person that they won't forgive. They think that they don't have to forgive that person because that person is not what he should be. It's, it be. it's a false sense of pride. The publican of Luke, the 18th chapter, when he went to the temple allegedly to pray, 
And he said, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other men. I'm no adulterer. I'm no extortioner. I'm not unjust. I thank thee that I'm not even like this publican standing over here. He said, I give a tithe of my earnings. I fast twice in the week. Now, what was the problem with that Pharisee? Why did he have such an unforgiving attitude towards that publican? Because he thought he was so much better than the publican. He thought he was so much holier than the, pub than the publican. He was so full of egotism, so full of self-righteousness. He didn't even pray on that occasion. He simply preached a sermon unto the Lord, a sermon on how good he was. Never once did he ask for God's forgiveness. Never once did he say that he needed God's forgiveness, that he was a sinner. His whole attitude was, look at how good I am, Lord. Look at how much better I am than this publican. You know, that fellow needs to be needs your forgiveness, but a guy that's as good as me, I don't need your forgiveness, and I don't even need to forgive him. That's the problem, friends and brethren, with people who won't forgive in many instances. They have this false sense of pride. They feel they're so much better than other people. They feel they can't make a mistake. And if they do make a mistake, they're not going to admit that they made the mistake because of this self-pride that they have, this egotism, this self-righteousness that's so prevalent in our society today. And certainly that attitude, friends and brethren, is contrary to everything that Jesus Christ and the inspired apostles ever stood for or taught. When Jesus preached that great sermon on the mount, that Sermon on the Mount is permeated with the idea of forgiving all of Jesus' teachings throughout his ministry. I think that forgiveness and the ability to forgive others was probably central in the preaching of Jesus. Jesus probably emphasized that as much as any other one thing that you can think of. In the Beatitudes that he gave in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, the fifth chapter, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Every single one of those Beatitudes, friends and brethren, is centered around an attitude of humbleness, meekness, and forgiving. A forgiving spirit. Every one of those Beatitudes, if you would apply them to your life, if I would apply them to my life, we could not be haughty. We could not be self-righteous. We could not be vain. We could not have that holier-than-thou attitude. We could not be unforgiving. We could not take the position that we know it all, and anybody who disagrees with us on anything has to be wrong. That's contrary to what Jesus taught in everything. Not only the Beatitudes, can you picture a... Blessed are the poor in spirit. Can you picture a poor in spirit, man, as one who is haughty and self-righteous and unforgiving? Blessed are they that mourn. Can you picture a man who mourns as being haughty and self-righteousness, self-righteous and unforgiving? Blessed are the meek. Can you picture a meek person being unforgiving? Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Can you picture a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness being unforgiving? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Can you picture a merciful person being unforgiving? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Can you picture a person who's pure in heart being unforgiving? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Can you picture a peacemaker being unforgiving? You know why we don't have more peace in the world today? And you know why we don't have perfect peace in the Lord's church today? It's because people won't forgive. And when you don't forgive, you're not going to have peace. It's because of this vengeful, retaliatory, I'm going to do unto you what I think you did unto me attitude that is so prevalent in the world today and even prevalent among some New Testament Christians, contrary to everything the Lord taught. 
The only person who ever lived on this earth, friends and brethren, who would have been justified in refusing to forgive was Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the only person who ever lived on this earth who never committed a sin. How can a sinner who needs God's forgiveness himself refuse to forgive someone else? Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, If ye forgive men their trespasses, so shall the Heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither shall the Heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, friends and brethren, that language is just as plain as anything else that you read in the entire Bible. Just as unmistakable. You can have the mentality of a sixth grader in the portions of the Bible that deal with the salvation of our souls is written on a sixth grade level. You can have the mentality of a sixth grader. And you can't misunderstand what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, unless you want to misunderstand it. Unless you choose to misunderstand it. Unless you try to misunderstand it. Jesus says, you're willing to forgive the person who's offended you? God will forgive you. You are not willing to forgive the person who's offended you? God will not forgive you. Therefore, no sinner can ever be justified in not forgiving. Because if he doesn't forgive, he's not going to receive God's forgiveness. The only person who could ever find some kind of justification and not forgiving would be the person who needs no forgiveness himself. That's the only person who could be find any kind of justification in refusing to forgive. If a person needs forgiveness himself, he cannot possibly refuse to forgive someone else because what he's done is told God not to forgive him. Now, Jesus is the only one who didn't need God's forgiveness. Jesus is the only person who ever graced the face of this earth who never committed a sin. Jesus is the only person of whom it could be said there was found no guile in his mouth. Of whom it could be said, of whom he could say, which of you can convict me of sin? I want one of you, my enemies, the Pharisees who were constantly harassing Jesus. I want one of you to point out one sin that I've committed. His enemies could not show one mistake, not point out one sin that he had committed. Now, Jesus would have had some kind of justification in refusing to forgive because he didn't need any forgiveness and he truly was perfect. But Jesus is the one person who probably forgave as much, if not more, than any other person who ever lived. Jesus was so compassionate, so loving, so quick, so ready to forgive. When the Pharisees brought him that woman in John, the eighth chapter, caught in the very act of adultery, and they wanted Jesus to stone her to death or have her stoned to death, Jesus looked at those Pharisees and he said, Let him without sin among you cast the first stone at her. When they walked away from the eldest to the least, being convicted by their own conscience, Jesus turned to the woman and he said, Where are thine accusers? She said, I have none. Jesus said, Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. He forgave that woman because of his love and because of his compassion and because of the mercy that was such a part of the Son of God. Over in Luke, the seventh chapter, when Jesus was eating in the home of Simon the Pharisee and this woman of the streets, as the Bible describes her, came into the home and began to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. And, oh, self-righteous, proud, vain, egotistical, pharisaical, Simon said to himself, if this man were a prophet sent from God, surely he would know what manner of woman this is that touches him. A sinner. He can't be a prophet sent from God. You see, Simon thought he was so much better than that woman. So self-righteous, so proud, so vain. He wasn't going to have anything to do with that sinner. He wasn't going to have anything to do with allowing that woman to touch him like she was touching Jesus. Why, she was, she, was, she was fortunate that Simon allowed her to come into the home with the rest of the people there. His attitude was so holier than thou. Well, Jesus could read his mind. 
Jesus said to him, Simon, can I ask you a question? Simon says, speak on, master. Jesus said there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 pence and the other owed him 50 pence. Now, neither was capable of paying him. Neither was in a, in a position where they could pay their debt. So the creditor, he just simply forgave them both. Wiped the slate clean. Neither one of them owed him a cent. He just wiped out all the debts that they owed him. He said, now, which one of these do you think would love that man the most? Simon said, I suppose the one that he forgave the most. Jesus said, thou hast rightly said, Simon. He said, I came into your home. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't dry them. You didn't anoint my head with oil. This woman has not ceased to wash my feet with her tears, dry them with her hair, and to anoint me with oil. He said, you see, Simon, your sins, which are, are, are few, so you love little. This woman's sins, which are many, it's, and forgiven, she loves much. Now, Jesus said to Simon, you see, Simon, what your problem is, if I can interject this now, what I believe Jesus was saying to him, what your problem is, you just don't think of yourself as a sinner. You don't think of yourself as someone who needs salve, God's salvation and God's forgiveness because you think you're a little sinner. You don't think that you've got many sins because you don't go out into the streets and do the things that this woman has done. But you see, Simon made the great mistake that so many people make today. He didn't think of sins of disposition, sins of attitude, sins of self-righteousness, sins of vanity. He didn't think of those as being sins. He didn't think of those as being the kind of things that would disturb God and would cause God to, to be displeased with them. He thought the only kind of sins that God is displeased with you over is if you commit adultery, or if you murder somebody, or if you intentionally steal something. Well, Simon should have learned, as all of us should learn, that God is every bit as much as opposed to sins of disposition and sins of attitude as he is to overt sins. But anyway, Jesus turned to that woman and said, Thy faith has saved thee. He forgave that woman when Simon didn't want a thing to do with her because of his love and his compassion. When he was hanging on Calvary's cross and the thief a man who lived his life in rebellion against the laws of this land and against the laws of the land at that time and against the laws of God, said, Lord, remember me this day in thy kingdom. Jesus said, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Jesus saving people during, his, during the time that he was on earth and during the Mosaic dispensation in any manner that he chose to save them. The gospel plan of salvation not having gone into effect yet and the church not having been established yet. Jesus simply said to that thief, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. When Jesus was hanging on Calvary's cross and these people that had mocked him and spit in his face and embedded the crown of thorns in his head and made him march up that hill with that jagged, ragged-edged cross on his shoulders and beat him and ridiculed him and scourged him and laughed at him and gambled for his garments and said, if you be the Son of God, come on down, prove that you're the Son of God and literally making fun of him. In the midst of all of this, Jesus looked up to the heavens and said in Luke 23 and 34, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Matthew, the 27th chapter, the 54th verse, where the centurion soldier said, Surely this was the Son of God. At that time that he made that statement, the earth quaked and the skies darkened at the, at the death of Christ. And most people believe that it was because of the earthquake and the skies darkening that this man was convinced, the centurion soldier was convinced that Jesus was whom he claimed to be, and certainly there's no question that it had much to do with it. But I believe, friends and brethren, that along with the earth quaking and the sky darkening at the moment that Jesus expired, I believe that also, which had much to do with the centurion soldier 
coming to the conclusion that Jesus was the Son of God were his words on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. This centurion soldier had probably seen hundreds, if not thousands, of people crucified since that was a common method of execution in those days. And he probably had never heard before at any time any crucified person ever ask his crucifiers, ask God to forgive his crucifier. I'm convinced that that's the major reason that the centurion soldier cried out, surely this was the Son of God. Have you ever asked yourself what's the difference between Christians and people of the world? You know, a lot of times people of the world are just as moral as Christians are. Just as decent a people as Christians are. A lot of times people in the world are just as ethical as Christians are. What's the major difference between people in the world and Christians? Well, I believe one of the major differences should be the fact that the Christian has a forgiving attitude. The fact that the Christian so wants God's forgiveness in his life that he's willing to extend to others the same kind of forgiveness that he wants from God. The fact that the Christian... The real Christian knows how far he or she falls short of the goodness and glory of God. Knows how desperately each one of us need God's forgiveness and Jesus' blood and grace in our lives. And therefore, we look more to our own weaknesses and our own shortcomings and our own need for God. And that makes the true Christian so much more understanding, so much more compassionate towards the weaknesses and the mistakes and the shortcomings of others. Long as we look at ourselves in a vain way, in a self-righteous way, there'll be no difference between our attitudes and the attitudes of many people in the world. Christians must be a forgiving people. That is one of the greatest virtues that the Lord taught, and it might be the most elusive virtue of all. May God help you and may God help me to be more forgiving and to be as Christ was when he cried out, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that stands between you and the salvation of your soul. Find a, the congregation of the Lord's people this morning and obey your Lord in baptism so that you can contact the blood of Jesus and be cleansed of your sins and be added to the church that we read about in the New Testament. If you're a delinquent Christian, come back to the Lord this morning. Life is too short. Eternity is too long to leave this world without the Lord being on our side. Whatever your needs might be, my plea is that you'll turn to Jesus Christ for those needs to be satisfied. Obey him in baptism to have your sins forgiven. Come back to him if you're a delinquent Christian. It's our plea. In his name we do plead with you. Thank you so much for watching the program.
tiny bedroom is absolutely beautiful. And probably cost a... glad to have you watching the program this morning. As you can see, Brother Gordon Smith, the regular minister, is not on the program this morning. He is at a gospel meeting this week, so I will be filling in for him this week and probably several other weeks in the near future. This morning, I want to talk to you about what it means to be a disciple. The lesson text that we'll be looking at this morning is in, found in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. This is what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave to his disciples. And that's the subject that we want to look at this morning. What does it mean to be a disciple? You know, there's a lot said today about disciples and discipling, but we always have to think about that question. What does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, the word disciple from the original language of the New Testament was the word amathetes, which means one who has learned in something or one who has learned in something in order to achieve